really good to be with you again, uh, to be here among you. Uh, before I dive in, just as an aside from Hannah and I, we're so blessed by you as a church, and this is my first opportunity to thank you and uh, just express our gratitude for uh, welcoming us in to come in uh, for the residency. I will be, not Hannah. She won't be the resident, but I will be. And we're grateful to be among you, and and I'm grateful to be among you in that capacity. So excited for uh, that time that is coming. Um, It's such a rare thing, I think, in our culture today uh, for a church to offer such a thing even as as a residency. Uh, Kind of harkens back to um, a day when the role of pastor was um, oh taken taken very seriously, and the care of the church was very serious, and the desire to train men to be suited and approved for ministry was valued highly and so we 're grateful to see that in you, grateful to be a part of that and so it 's a rare thing to see, and we 're so blessed to see it in you and I think rarer still to see a church that is willing not only to bring in somebody as a resident, but to pay somebody to be a resident so that they can focus on that fully. And you guys have done that. And not just pay, but full-time to free me up to be able to focus on that with intensity. I'm grateful for that. And not only that, but now to provide for our housing. What an incredible blessing in every way. You have met every need uh, that we have prayed for, and uh, God has used you to do that. And so we're so grateful for you as a church, grateful for the opportunity and praying that God would bless you and this church uh, through the seed that you've planted in that and that God would use it to do mighty things. Uh, So thank you. Thank you for that. Will you pray with me as we jump into God's word? Father, thank you as uh, the one who is the first and original to all blessings. It is you, Father, who has blessed us with the knowledge of you, who has given us, by your grace, the ability to know you, to be transformed by you, as Aaron prayed, to walk in newness of life with you, and then to bless others because of you. What a privilege. So, Father, thank you for this opportunity to preach this morning and to preach a beautiful doctrine on the clarity of your scripture, that it can be known as we live in this world that is scrambling for newness that it can manufacture. You have offered the perfect and final authority on where true blessing lies. So I pray for us this morning that we would rest on the truth of your gospel. Prepare us to hear your word. I pray that you would make clarity from my words that it would be driven deep into our hearts uh, in such a way that we would live as a people who are content, who are restful in a restless world, restful in the treasure of knowing and enjoying you forever because of the work of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it is a new year. Happy New Year. Glad to be with you in the new year. And as we think about the new year, we think about all the things that come with that, maybe New Year's resolutions, 
new things that you want to accomplish this year, uh, perhaps uh, maybe the new things that will change from 2020 to 2021, maybe things will uh, change for the better, for the more comfort in our world as we move forward. Um, but as I prayed, one thing that does not change and has not changed is the truth of the gospel of God. The gospel stands eternally as God's self-revelation, self-access for his people. And it is a tremendous blessing for us to enjoy uh, the doctrine of clarity that we can know the means by which God has saved us and is sanctifying us. It is a tremendous doctrine that allows us great rest in the character of who God is. And it is perhaps uh, very revealing of the danger that we so easily fall into of desiring to change that which God has shown to be perfect. This is really well displayed in Exodus chapter 32. And we see the people of Israel who have now camped on the boundaries of Mount Sinai. They're waiting for the prophet Moses to come down and give them further instruction. And they've waited for about a month. And as they've waited, discontentment has begun to grow. And they've begun to become restless. And this restlessness would eventually lead to 3,000 men being slain by the sword. See, in their restlessness, the people had asked the high priest to cast them a god to worship. He fashioned it into a calf, as I'm sure you know, and he declared, This is your God, O Israel, the one who brought you out of Egypt. Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. What happened to Israel? They had seen God work. What happened? In the bloodshed that followed, the people must have wondered that very question, what happened? Perhaps some tried to defend themselves by saying that the calf depicted Yahweh. That's what Aaron called him, Yahweh, the calf. Uh, Perhaps they argued that this calf represented God rightly as a God of vitality and of strength, as I'm sure is what the calf was intended to portray. What could be wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is that, as in any idolatry, is an attempt to change, to make new the God that was to be their standard and he was to be made into their desires. A God that would serve them and that would be for their benefit, at least as they saw it. The people profaned God's name by changing the objective and immutable truth of who he is. And God's rage burned hot against them for it. Well, fast forward several thousand years. And the restlessness has not changed, has it? The desire to attempt to reinvent God and his gospel are 
all over the place. All over the world, and they even permeate his church and attempt to make new what is old and eternal. And that desire to change is not all that new in itself. For wasn't it the serpent in the garden who said, Did God really say? Did God really say? An attempt to distort the clear message, the clarity of God's word. An attempt to reinvent God himself. But Paul warns against such things by giving us clear teaching on the clarity of God and his gospel in Galatians chapter 1. And so the purpose of this sermon is that you would rest on the clarity of the God of the only source of hope in a restless world. That you would rest on the only source of hope in a restless world. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. And we'll be in verses 6 through 12. Paul writes, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In this short yet clear passage, Paul reveals three realities of the gospel, and that's what we'll be looking at today as we work through this text. Three realities of the gospel. The first reality of the gospel is that the gospel is knowable. The gospel is knowable. As we move through this text, what stands out is Paul's referring to the gospel. Did you catch it? He refers to the gospel that he came and preached and accuses them of turning to a different gospel. It is one that he has preached to them before. One that they received, evidently. And one that they have now turned from. We see that in verses 6 and 7. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. See, because Paul uses this language, it must be assumed that the gospel itself is composed of objective and tangible realities. Maybe you're wondering how long did it take you to come up with that? That's not all that deep. You're right. 
But the enemy in his craftiness uses the lie of God's ambiguity to distort. And it's an old lie. This is precisely what Paul is combating here. It seems that some have inserted works into the gospel in this case. They said, believe in the work of Christ and do a little bit more. They've added to the gospel. Christian culture has not passed this lie yet. We have not moved past that lie from the enemy today any more than the church did then. Have you seen that lie before? Changing the nature of the gospel, adding something to the gospel, taking away from it. And it always comes with this air of spirituality when it comes. Maybe you've heard, well, it's just me and Jesus doing church together, how we want to do it. Maybe it's Jesus calling, rejecting the voice of Scripture in favor of a new revelation, something that God might give me personally. It's the gospel of finding your true north, whatever makes you happiest. It's perhaps... The gospel of moral superiority. Rejecting the need for true gospel by minimizing sin. It's the gospel of social awareness. Changing the gospel to a societal reform. And reducing Jesus to a moral teacher. It's a kind of universalism that makes God schizophrenic and and lumps religion together. As we see it in the bumper sticker, coexist. It's not new. Wasn't new then. Well, whatever the lie is, it's it's no better than Ricky Bobby praying to baby Jesus because it's the Jesus that he likes best, right? And we're left with sixty four percent of American Christians rejecting the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. The heart of the gospel. But Paul says that the gospel is an objective reality that you can turn from. And evidently you can be clearly seen to turn from the true nature of the gospel. The Bible consistently emphasizes its own clarity. That it can be known that it's built upon objective realities. For example, the church is commanded to Teach the statutes of God to your children. Talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise, you can't teach these things in that way if you don't have clarity, if you can't understand what God's word is saying. Church, we are to ask God for wisdom if any of us lacks it. As James indicates, he echoes the psalmist who tells God's people that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law and testimony of the Lord can revive and even help the simple to be wise. It must be clear if it can make the simple wise. Praise God. 
Jesus belabors the clarity of Scripture by reminding those he is teaching that the problem is not with Scripture and their lack of understanding, but by asking them repeatedly, have you not read what Scripture says? See, Scripture is repeatedly emphasized to be clear. It attests to itself this way. Scripture is clear, and the gospel is, as it is depicted in Scripture, an objective reality based upon the historical work of a Savior to address his people's greatest and most imminent need, namely their enmity with God because of their sinful nature. That's what's revealed in Scripture. We can know the nature of the gospel. The gospel is a the gospel. But the knowability is not enough. As Paul reveals, as he moves on, the gospel is God's. The gospel is God's. I have a co-worker that I've worked with for about a year. He's become a friend. I've shared the gospel with him a few dozen times. He's one who claims to be a Christian, uh, but does not believe nor accept the true nature of the gospel. In fact, rejects it outright when he's challenged by it. Rejects the idea that he is born sinful. See, in his conception, my gospel is not that good because it means that he's bad. And so his gospel is one that indicates that he's really a good person at heart and that if he does good deeds, he will find his way in heaven. See, in this scheme, my gospel will always be bad and his will always be better. The problem with that is that the gospel is not his and the gospel is not mine. I don't get to set the tone for what the gospel teaches. While it's true that the gospel is clear and made up of objective realities, they're not my truths that I create for myself. They belong to God. See, Paul continues in verse 8. But even if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Moving down to verse 11, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Paul is further clear that to deviate from the objective realities is met with a curse. What curse? Well, there's only one. That's enmity with God. That's destruction. Paul is emphatic, repeats it twice, even condemning a messenger from heaven itself that if they were to preach to you something other than what you knew and received before, that he would be under the curse of destruction and an enemy of God. Why? Because it's not his to change. And it's not yours to change. And it's not mine to change. 
the truth and reality of the gospel belongs to God himself. And Paul, the messenger here, received it by direct revelation. And he preaches it as a herald, not as one who creates it, but as one who brings it to bear. See, the word gospel means good news. It's likely that we all know that, but it is a word that Paul takes from his culture and he redeems it here. See, heralds from Rome in that day would come and proclaim gospel on street corners, in front of buildings, wherever a crowd would gather and hear, and they would declare the gospel, gospel of Caesar's military victory, Caesar's conquest. They would proclaim the victory and the gospel in it. See, the herald did not change the message because it was the word of the king. It was not his message to change. To change that was death to the herald. That was not his responsibility. Well, the same is true with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not your message, but the king's. It is not Paul's message, but the king's. Therefore, these realities, these truths cannot be altered from how they are revealed. Well, how is it that they're revealed? Well, by Paul or to Paul, rather, they are revealed directly by revelation from Christ to you. They are revealed here in the word of God. This is the objective reality of who God is and what his gospel does and is scripture. We don't deviate from scripture because it is the truth that we rest on. We rely on its clarity and we claim that it is from God himself. That's where we source our doctrine, not from human wisdom, not from reason, not from the culture around us that would seek to have better ideas. I love the way John Piper illustrates doctrine as diamonds. He depicts them as of infinite beauty, beauty and value, and that we don't own them, but we guard them. We guard the diamonds of doctrine. Sometimes we take them out individually and we let the light reflect through them. We display them. We show them off. We cherish them and we put them back. We protect them. We guard them against pirates coming and attempting to steal them, attempting to peddle them as something less than they are, attempting to minimize them. They aren't ours. They belong to God. We don't determine their value. The truth is that the gospel of God is the wisdom of God and it's not very man-centered. In fact, it's man's humiliation. It's the revelation that man could not find his way back to God as every other religion has attempted to do. They've all attempted to do what Babel did, to build a tower to reach the heavens. And scripture clearly reveals that man is humiliated in his attempts to come back to God. We have no way. And this wisdom comes from God. 
and it is perfect because it is the wisdom of God. Therefore, it is eternal and it does not and cannot change. But because it's the wisdom of God, we come to our third observation from this text, and that is that it is astonishing to turn from the gospel. It is astonishing to turn from the gospel. You know, there's a sad truth, and that is that as time goes on, words tend to lose their meaning, tend to lose their weight. The Christian Standard Version renders this that I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. The word amazed, astonished. I don't think those words carry enough weight here for what Paul is seeing, especially in our culture today. We're a culture of cheap words. We talk a lot. And so when Paul says that he's astonished, he means that there is no greater tragedy than what he is seeing in this church. That you would know and understand the realities of the gospel, that you would understand that they are revealed from God, and that you would somehow turn from those things. It's astonishing. It's amazing. Why is it astonishing and amazing? Well, on the one hand, it's astonishing and amazing because the punishment is severe for turning. There's no greater curse for men, is there? whose only hope is to belong to God. But also, because the gospel is so glorious, the objective reality of the gospel is so beautiful that it is astonishing to turn from it. See, Paul reveals that objective truth of the gospel in verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what's happening there? This is the gospel. That grace and peace has been granted to you. From God, our Father, from God himself, the source of all light has granted grace and peace to you. And from the Lord Jesus Christ, who as Lord, as Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, gave himself for your sins to deliver you from the present evil age. You were captive, stuck, trapped as an enemy of God, a part of the present evil age, that which can have no presence with God. And you had no hope of redemption, no hope of coming out of that. And somehow, for some reason, Jesus Christ comes and delivers you from the dominion of evil in your life. And now, would you turn from that? You who were dead in your transgressions and sins, as Paul indicates elsewhere, would you turn back to death? When free life is offered, would you turn back to death? 
you would take the objective truth of rebels made children of the high king and traded in on a gospel of financial prosperity, social reform. What would you trade that for? It's astonishing because you turn from it for something so cheap. That's what's happening here. They've cheapened the gospel and it's astonishing. It's astonishing because according to Paul, they've turned from God himself. That which the gospel is meant to address. That historical problem that from the beginning, man is created to dwell with God in the garden. And his sin drives him from the garden. And the gospel comes out of nowhere, at least not out of the beauty of man, to draw itself back to God. And it returns you to that fellowship with God. That is of infinite worth. Why would anyone make such a trade? Why would anyone attempt to convert the gospel into anything less? Well, Paul tells us in verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Why would anyone do that? For the approval of man. That's why. See, we live in an already not yet state, don't we? We live in the presence of the world. Understanding the glories of God as they're revealed through Scripture as they're given in his gospel. And yet we exist with the world who does not understand them. But the world does understand financial prosperity, and it desires it, and it calls it gospel. The world does understand social reform, and it desires it, and it wants it. The world does understand total autonomy, Independence from authority. And it wants it. The world is just as restless as Israel was with a calf. Taking God and reducing him to the image that they view blessing from. That thing which they think will provide ultimate satisfaction that makes sense to the world see the gospel is meant to address that which the god of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to that is the enjoyment of god that's what the gospel accomplishes and that's not a cheap gospel so the truth is that god is not holding out on you by offering you offering you the gospel that he has offered He has offered the greatest gift possible, the one of greatest worth, and he has paid an infinite price at the cost of his own son. And he's offered it to worms. That is astonishing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word, the gospel 
that is clear, clear enough for us to understand and yet able to be studied for a lifetime and enjoyed eternally as one that we will continue to revel in for all of eternity as your children. Father, I pray that you would do the work of salvation in us, that you, through your gospel that is defined by your standards and accomplished by only your merit, would save us. Father, we need you. I pray that we would not trade your gospel for anything lesser, as is so tempting to do as we live amongst the world. Let us be wise, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.